Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll examine House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's plan for raising the debt limit. He introduced this in Washington last week. It's called the Limit, Save, and Growth Act of 2023, and it proposes over $4 trillion in budget cuts in return for suspending the debt limit through March of 2024 or until another $1.5 trillion has been added to the debt, whichever comes first. The bill is going nowhere in the Democratic-controlled Senate, but it does give us a first glance at what House Republicans want in exchange for raising the debt limit. Joining me to discuss McCarthy's bill are our own two Capitol Hill veterans, uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. And then in our final segment, we'll be joined by Dr. Mike Aguilar, president and founder of the Fiscal Challenge Competition, in which teams of college students from across the nation collaborate on detailed proposals to achieve a fiscal policy goal. We heard about some of those proposals last week from students who competed in the 2023 finals. Dr. Aguilar is going to uh, discuss some of the background and perspectives on the fiscal challenge with uh, me and Concord Coalition Field Director Phil Smith and Communications Director of Harris. But before we get into what I think will be a more hopeful segment, we, we first need to delve back into the debt limit. And for that, let me welcome back to the show my favorite two guests, Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Uh, well, just to set the stage, uh, the nation bumped up against its uh, $31.4 trillion statutory debt limit earlier this year. I think it was back in January. And since then, the Treasury Department has been using what it refers to as extraordinary measures to pay all of its bills without breaching the limit. Uh, but those measures will run out sometime between June and September. And at that point, the government won't be able to pay all of its bills on time because it would need to borrow and it won't be able to borrow. So uh, this would harm the nation's creditworthiness. It would uh, probably damage the economy. Uh, and it would certainly cause hardship, hardship for anybody expecting to get a check from the federal government. So almost everybody concedes that the debt limit is going to have to go up, uh, but there is a serious split between Democrats and Republicans on how that should be done. President Biden says there needs to be a clean debt limit increase, meaning nothing attached to it. Republicans are saying that there must be spending cuts attached to any debt limit increase. And so last week, there was a significant development in this regard. Um, Speaker Kevin McCarthy unveiled a bill called the Limit, Save, Grow Act of 2023. 
LSGA, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, which he said would responsibly raise the debt limit into next year and provide more than $4.5 trillion in savings to the American taxpayers. Among other things, uh, the McCarthy bill would roll back discretionary spending in 2024 to the enacted level in 2022 it would impose a discretionary spending cap of 1% annual growth over the next 10 years, 1% a year. It would claw back unspent COVID money. It would impose tighter work requirements uh, for some means-tested benefit programs, primarily Medicaid and the SNAP program on food assistance. And it would repeal or scale back several Biden administration initiatives that have been enacted, such as the student loan forgiveness plan, increased funding for the IRS and climate change initiatives. And in return for all that, it would suspend the debt limit until March 31st of 2024 or another $1.5 trillion in debt has been incurred, whichever occurs First, so like President Biden's budget, which came out in March, it's pretty much a partisan wish list. Uh, it's dead on arrival in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Just like uh, President Biden's budget is dead on arrival in the House. Uh, however, um, this, uh, this new McCarthy bill can be viewed as a response to Biden's budget. And it's kind of the Republicans opening bid in a in a negotiation, um, although one one could ask a negotiation over what <laughs> is the negotiation going to be over a budget or is it going to be over what do you need to do to raise the debt limit? And that's kind of where we are right now. So with all that background, let me let me turn to Tori and uh, first and uh, you can go wherever you want with this, but 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 is is this proposal from McCarthy uh, likely to unlock uh, the gridlock on the Hill? Uh, I think that's an excellent question. Um, as you rightly pointed out, uh, both President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have put forward proposals um, that really don't they're not realistic. They're not realistic in terms of what we can afford as a nation. Um, They're not realistic in terms of what the priorities are for the American people. Um, And they're not realistic for the political environment that exists uh, on Capitol Hill right now. Um, So uh, with, uh, with, with, with that said, um, I think there's, there's one, there's one important voice that, you aren't hearing from right now in the debate over raising the the federal debt limit, and that's the financial markets. Um, you know, so whether or not this is going to you know unlock gridlock between the president and and the Republicans in Congress, I think right now probably not, um, and I don't think it will until the financial markets start pressing both the White House and Republicans to get more serious in their in their offers and what they are willing to trade off uh, when it comes to to raising the debt limit. Um, right now, I think the financial markets that they, they, they see this as, as not a problem for today. 
Uh, and maybe they're believing that, you know, Congress has been down this path once before and got their fingers singed in 2011. So they're probably not going to repeat the same mistake again, especially since there's a presidential election coming up next year. Maybe I, I you know, I, I for whatever reason, or maybe the financial markets are concerned with what's going on in the banking industry right now. And so they've got sort of my myopia when it comes to looking at what's important to the financial markets today. You know, today is making sure that there's liquidity um, in the in the banking sector. Um, but unless and until you know corporate America and the financial markets start pressing on lawmakers uh, on both sides, both ends of 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 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, I don't think we're going to see much action. Let me just uh, on a follow up on that. You know, um, I, I I keep uh, thinking that the business community is going to ride to the rescue and and. <laughs> If that's true, they they haven't started their engines or uh, taken the horses out of the barn or I mean, they they seem kind of sanguine. Is it is it sort of that we've gotten so used to shutdowns and that sort of which is a very different thing than than a, uh, reaching the debt limit? But I mean, is it, is it kind of a cynical? Oh, they'll work it out and. Uh, you know, they, they just can't get excited about this because they just assume that it's all an act. Well, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, lawmakers tend to act like college students, which is if it's not due tomorrow, then it's just not due. Right. And so the, the debt limit isn't an issue for tomorrow. It's not an issue for next week. So they're not thinking about it. Um, and I and I'm I'm wondering if that's perhaps the case with you know, corporate America and the financial markets. They've got other things that are staring them in the face that are problems for today. And that's what's taking their focus. You know, there's been a lot of, if, you, if you've been paying attention to the news this week, there's been a lot of layoffs in corporate America, um, a lot of, you know, getting rid of excess workers from from the, the, the COVID lockdown, getting rid of middle management, et cetera. Everybody's trying to streamline in anticipation of economic slowdown. Then you've got, you know, that the banking crisis uh, that, that hit, a few weeks ago, people are still trying to figure out, well, how deep does that go? Is it over? Are there still other banks that are at risk? Um, you know, it's 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 uh, earnings season. So everybody's busy, you know, trying to figure out if, you know, your publicly traded companies are meeting their their stated earnings targets and are shares overvalued, et cetera. So, you know, they've got a lot on their plate. And you throw in, you know, everything that's going on internationally with what's going on with China, what's going on with Ukraine, what's going on with Sudan. And there's 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 a lot that's uh, occupying people's attention right now. And, and I just don't think the debt limit is on the front burner. It's on the it's on the stove, but it's not on the front burner. Well, Steve, let's uh, let's look ahead a bit. So because I'm uh, for all the captains of Wall Street that are looking ahead and listening to this program and <laughs> Wanting to know what is going to be coming down the pike. A, a reminder, um, if you would, because I know you've you've looked into this um, in the Social Security context, but uh, just even even greater. If we get to that point, if we get to this point where the extraordinary measures run out, uh, what is likely to happen? You can speculate a little bit because well, nobody really knows. <laughs> yeah, well, what's going to happen where? I mean, you know, as, as Tori was just pointing out, I mean, you know, 
we don't know quite when it's going to, I mean, we refer to it as X date, you know, when, when is it going to happen? When are we going to run out of borrowing authority? And, you know, we've had predictions anywhere from, you know, mid-June to as late as uh, September. And they, you know, it's still highly uncertain when, when it is going to happen. Um, and as a result, you know, people are, you know, I, I don't think you know, only, you know, you, people focus when there's a crisis right in front of them, but until it happens, it sort of gets ignored. But I mean, you know, arguably this is, you know, when the government runs out of the ability to borrow money, aside from the effects on financial markets, you obviously force the government to go on a cash flow operating basis. So obviously the Treasury Department is collecting receipts almost on a daily basis from one source or another. You have big quarterly payments for corporations, you have withholding from wages from employees, and those are done almost literally daily. So there is cash coming into the government. Uh, the problem is the cash flow varies from month to month, you know, week to week, day to day. And so as a result, you know, the bills that are coming in that need to be paid, if there's not enough cash on hand to pay those bills and the government can't borrow because it's reached the debt limit, they, uh, they have to basically delay payment. And the Treasury Department doesn't have any really operating procedures to choose priorities, at least none that, that they've ever admitted to or none that people are aware of. So the assumption is that as the bills come in, they just start piling up. And once there's cash available to pay those bills, they get paid. And then you have to wait for the next, you know, tranche of bills to come in and the next, you know, flow of, of cash to become available. And so essentially the government goes from, you know, operating on a, you know, borrow as you go basis to a pay as you go basis. And that means that bills that should get paid don't. And the delay could be days, it could be weeks. It just depends on, you know, the, the cash flow of the government as, you know, as X date happens. And, you know, because there's such variability, you know, we don't, we don't really know I mean, when it's going to happen. And then as a result, what is the cash flow of the government at that point in time? And how does it vary then over the next, you know, ensuing days or weeks before Congress um, you know, acts to raise the debt limit. And hopefully, you know, were we to get to that point and things, the checks all stopped going out, you know, maybe that would be enough to wake everybody up and they would, um, you know, raise the debt limit and things would go back to normal. But, you know, the, the assumption is that there would be a huge delay. Um, and just to, um, for those who think that that would be maybe a clever way to, to cut spending, it, it, it would, in that sense, you, you cut spending, but you're not cutting the obligations to make the well, payments. So, right, I mean, that's that's the dilemma. Is it? I mean, in some cases, there's provisions of law that impose penalties for delayed payment. So, in many cases, if you don't pay people on time, you have to pay a penalty. And anybody who's entitled to a benefit, you know, they can go to court and sue. And so, you know, it's not, I mean, you, you're just, you've stopped paying the bills, but you've not undone the obligation to pay them. So it'll just mean that you have to pay them later. And in fact, might you have to pay even more later? So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not, you know, you don't uh, magically cut government spending and get out of the obligation to pay the spending. Uh, you just postpone the payments. You don't, you don't, you don't eliminate them. Um. Let's um, let's look a little bit uh, closer at the 
what McCarthy has proposed. And I guess I just guess for me, it's important for people to ask the question whether this is a should be a, considered a budget proposal, uh, a counter to because Biden has said he's not going to negotiate over the debt limit, but he's happy to negotiate over the budget. So we get into sort of a semantic thing here is that the what, what, what McCarthy has proposed is should we look at it as a budget proposal or as a set of conditions for raising the debt ceiling? And I think there are very different consequences depending upon how you look at it, um, what slot it falls into. But, but, but it, Tori, what do you think of it as, as a budget proposal versus a, a set of conditions for raising the debt ceiling? Just on well, the substantive provisions. I mean, the the, re- the only reason why this makes this uh, uh, a negotiation on the debt limit is the you know the very last two and a half three pages of this three hundred and twenty piece page le- legislation says, oh, and by the way, after you do all these things, we'll agree to to, to raise the debt limit. So you've got you know three hundred eighteen pages of uh, you know, appropriations and you know, discretionary appropriations and, and and mandatory spending language, direct spending language. And then at the very end, you've got this little punctuation mark called the debt limit. So, you know, I mean, you can call it what you want to call it. But I mean, I I think this is something as a former congressional staffer, this is something I would normally expect to see when we're talking about, for example, an omnibus appropriations bill at the end of the year. You know, if Congress doesn't get all 12 of its appropriations bills done on time, we've got to throw all of them into one big kitchen sink bill. This is the type of term sheet that I would see between you know, two opposing parties, um, or even between Congress and the president, when it comes to figuring out, all right, how much are we going to spend on discretionary appropriations this year? Steve, um, one of the big, the biggest, by far, the biggest savings in this bill is uh, a cap on discretionary spending. Uh, And I know you've been looking at the discretionary spending numbers. Um, I mean, how does it, it just is a substantive proposal. um, How does this cap look? Well, you know, I mean, everybody is sort of pointing at how big the savings are. They're saying, oh, we're going to save, you know, trillions of dollars by capping discretionary spending. But the people need to remember, I mean, we operate on what's called a baseline. So you take the current level of spending and then you project it forward, usually based on some rate of inflation. And so how much you spend or how much you're projected to spend and therefore how much savings you're going to assume is all a function of where did you start and what what is the assumed rate of growth? So when you talk about spending reductions, generally you're talking about reductions from some rate of increase. And I mean, to put this in perspective, so prior to COVID, so in January of 2020, the Congressional Budget Office put out their baseline of how much we were gonna spend on discretionary programs. And they predicted prior to COVID that this year, 2023, that we would have spent about one and a half trillion dollars. Well, the current prediction projection for this year is one point eight trillion dollars. So we're we're spending three hundred billion dollars more this year than we assumed we would spend this year back before COVID happened. So there's been a huge increase in spending, and a lot of that is related to COVID. But then when you take this huge increase in spending and you project it forward. You get you get even higher levels of spending. So when you talk about oh well, we're going to cut spending or we're going to slow the rate of growth of spending, I mean if you compared it to what we thought we were going to be spending, 
it's probably, well, I wouldn't say it's an increase, but it's not very much of a reduction. It's only because we've added $300 billion to the baseline and then projected that going forward. Do you get all of these savings? Because it's like we're, you know, we're, we're you, you project it. Yeah. You yeah. project a big amount and then you don't, you don't, uh, and then you don't, and then you don't spend it. So, you know, it's not unreasonable to say that, you know, maybe we're spending too much and we have some room to cut back. No, well, what, we're going to have to hold it there and, and yeah. <laughs> up on, on, on the other side of the break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And uh, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are discussing debt limit proposals. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about the debt limit and how it fits into the budget process. All the focus is on the debt limit, and uh, that's, you know, we're going to have to raise it sometime later this year. In the meantime, the budget process itself seems to be put on hold. Um, Tori, what what is it? <laughs> what's happening to the budget process this year? Former budget staffer, what's going on with the budget process? Uh, suffice it to say, it, it's non-existent. Um, you know, uh, the president started, the, kicked off the process by introducing his budget, but he did introduce it a month late. Uh, Republicans howled the fact that he was late, but you know the House budget resolution is nowhere to be seen, and they're you know <laughs> they're late at this point too. Um, so you know the, the the budget process normally kicks off in the in Congress with a, a budget resolution, which is basically a, a planning document for the house and the senate um that says all right this is we're going to establish a, a a ceiling on spending we're going to establish a floor on revenues and this is how much appropriators are going to have to spend on discretionary appropriations this year and this is how much uh, our authorizing committees have to to spend on on legislation and this is how much we think we're going to run up in debt and deficits in this year and some of the years that that follow and um, usually, you know, well, not usually, but they're, they're supposed to, both chambers are supposed to agree uh, to that that budget blueprint. And then we're off and running on the appropriations process that, you know, the appropriators have their their allocation and they're off and running, uh, drafting up 12 appropriations bills. Well, the, the, the process pretty much broke down this year like it has in years past. And uh, that, you know, we, we don't have a budget resolution. We don't have a congressional blueprint about what appropriators you know, want to spend this year and what authorizing committees want to do this year with legislation. Yeah, my my suggestion in a uh, blog that I put out earlier this week was that they're fighting the, the House Republicans are fighting the, the right fight on the wrong hill. Yeah. We, we ought to be thinking about uh, McCarthy's proposal as a counter to the Biden budget. And, and maybe the Senate Budget Committee could well, the Senate is just sort of standing by both both parties. I mean, just <laughs> like watching this play out and, you know, call us when when you need us sort of a thing. Uh, Steve, uh, looking at some of the proposals here, does it strike you as odd that uh, in a fight about the debt ceiling and saving the country from fiscal ruin, that there are no proposals in here that affect the two biggest programs in the federal budget that are headed towards insolvency, Social Security and Medicare? Well, yeah, unfortunately, uh, as as we've discussed before, at the President Biden's State of the Union, he and the Congress all stood up for seniors and <laughs> said they they weren't going to touch Social Security and Medicare. So 
Uh, you know, as you note, those are the, 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 you know, the elephant in the room, uh, but nobody wants to, to touch them. So you're, you're left with fighting over discretionary spending, uh, which is, you know, that, that's where we usually go. I mean, if you go back a few years to, to 2011, the debt ceiling, uh, that's when we passed the, uh, the Budget Control Act and we imposed caps on discretionary spending. So, you know, what's being proposed is not totally out of line with what has been done in the past. But as you you know, as you say, if this is a, a debate about the budget, you really have to talk about revenues, which is where the President Biden wants to go. And you have to talk about Social Security and Medicare, which is where no one seems to want to go. And so I guess the question is, you know, is there room to negotiate between the starting position of the White House, which is raise taxes on the rich, and the starting point of the House Republicans, which is to, to you know, cut discretionary spending, you know, is there room for compromise so that we can do sort of a mini budget uh, deficit reduction package? And then as part of that package, we would then, you know, agree to raise the debt limit for some, you know, extended period of time. I, you know, it's doesn't look like it right now. But. No, I mean, that's the problem is, that, you know, neither side has been willing to budge. I mean, you know, it, it's it's not it's not clear how they get to, you know, get to something that they can agree on. I was um, I, I mean, the image that comes to mind is two freight trains racing at each other from opposite ends of the track. I I, I don't see how you get off of that. But, you know. Oh, let me just put it out there. I do think that strategically the Republicans are in a tough position on this. Because in 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 putting out these proposals, these budget cutting proposals, which I think are all perfectly legitimate, putting them out there as a condition for raising the debt limit rather than as an alternative to Biden's budget puts them in a strategically difficult position because eventually we're going to have to raise the debt limit and it's going to look an awful lot like people aren't getting their checks and the government's about to default because McCarthy wants to enact his partisan agenda. And it I think that's why you don't see Biden moving here, because that that seems to be where things would play out. Now, I guess there's a, a political risk on the Democratic side that you never know how these things are going to play out politically. And, you know, Biden has said he's not going to negotiate over the debt limit. And people might say, well, it's his fault then. Um, well, that's, so that's that's always the political uh, you know dynamic is if you do something and something bad goes wrong, who gets the blame. Um, you know, we, you go back several years for several decades. I mean, there were always fights over shutting down the government, you know, not not passing the appropriation bills and each side would blame the other. And the question was, who did the public blame and did it matter in the next election? And that's potentially what you have here is that, yeah, the White House thinks that if the House Republicans cause the government to default, uh, that people are going to blame the Republicans. But if it tanks the economy and the economy's in a recession, it could very well affect uh, you know the next presidential election because you know people tend to vote their pocketbook and if the economy is in in the in you know the economy's in the toilet who gets blamed congress or the white house and you know it's just a matter of it becomes a blame game so you know it's not clear that that's really what they need to do and it's certainly not what the country needs for them to do uh, but we'll see Yes, we will. Well, the economy has a mind of its own, and uh, it could be that the economy will intercede as well, because we've been waiting for the 
<laughs> the foretold recession the, the, for a long time is the Fed has been trying to control uh, inflation by bringing up interest rates. And you could have the uh, long foretold recession, uh, you know, kick in uh, inappropriately, and that could blow up in everybody's face. So, Tori, how do they get out of this? Do they uh, approve a bipartisan commission? That's a, that's an idea that's been put on the table. Is that uh, is that a viable if, if I knew, if I knew how this get, we got solved, I'd be gambling in Vegas on a daily basis. I mean, there are so many personalities in here, and so many people have drawn red lines that are just completely not conducive to, you know, compromise. Um, I I really don't know how this is going to play out. Um, if I had to guess, and I would not bet any money on this at all, um, I think they suspend the debt limit until you know, December-ish timeframe, or they decide, they, they they suspend it until, I don't know what, September, October, when they have to start talking about appropriations and they try and, and match up, you know, the, the, the debt limit X date, if you will, which I think is a misnomer in and of itself. Um, it's more like an X week or X two weeks, right? Because the markets start going bonkers, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks ahead of the quote, X date, because they panic that, you know, Congress isn't doing anything. So anyway, side effect. Um, what I think happens is they 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 try and line up the end of year negotiations on spending with an increase in the debt limit. So this all gets rolled into a kitchen sink bill in, in December, which if you're a congressional staffer, you know, just cancel Christmas right now. <laughs> just, just don't. <laughs> you know, I know you expressed some uh concern about the the March deadline in this bill, because even if they did everything McCarthy wants, they only suspend the debt limit until the end of March of next year or whenever they run up another one point five trillion, which could happen even before then. Right. And then uh, you kind of set the clock running again on the so-called extraordinary measures, which would run out when? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, so it used to be, you know, long ago that extraordinary measures could really buy you some significant time um, because our burn rate wasn't that high. But now that we're spending money, you know, hand over fist, you know, we're running deficits, you know, close to two trillion dollars a year soon and not soon. Um, you know, our burn rate is really high. So those extraordinary measures don't get you as far as they used to get you. And if by next March, for example, where we're in another slow growth or a recession, um, that puts further pressure on revenues. Um, so it's hard to say how long extraordinary measures could last in that instance. Um, it could be something that you know gets us three months. It could be something that gets us six months. Um, but you know, if it if it buys you time for for six months, then that means okay, so three of March is the third month. Add six. That's nine. That's September. Well, guess what's happening in September and October of of 2024? Congress is gone and running for re-election. Every member of the House is up for re-election. You've got a third of the Senate that's up for re-election, and then you've got a new president who's who's you know the the president the White House is up for you know. Uh, re-election. Yeah, so, so, I mean, the DC yeah. is a ghost town in it, September, October. Well, that's so. what gets me about this is that, you know, just hypothetically, if I, if all that happened and all you get out of it is uh, basically a year of suspension of the debt limit, uh, it, it doesn't seem to me that it's worth the political price. 
um, repealing all of Biden's initiatives and, and putting a budget cap in return for raising the debt ceiling by a year just it doesn't if you're a Democrat, that, that, that seems to be a real non-starter in terms of the bang for the buck. But of course, that's what negotiations are all about. As we color-coded the president's budget, he, he didn't score particularly high on our <laughs> assessment of um, transparency and, and other things. So we're going to have to, uh, we've run out of time for this week. Our, our debt limit has been reached, our time limit. So. <laughs> Uh, I'll be I'll uh, I'll say goodbye to Steve and Tori, but I will be back uh, in uh, right after this short break to talk to Mike Aguilar, who runs the fiscal challenge that we heard about from some of the students who competed in that. And they're going to have to deal with all these difficult problems once they become our, our future leaders. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, we're going, to, uh, we're going to talk about the fiscal challenge with the president and founder of the fiscal challenge, Dr. Mike Aguilar. Um, you heard a little bit about the fiscal challenge last week from the students who competed in it. And uh, uh, Mike, uh, I wanted this week to talk just about the fiscal challenge as an institution and mm-hmm you know, why you set, set this up and, uh, you know, how it, how it works. What, what are the, some of the teaching goals here? The Fiscal Challenge is an educational nonprofit. We're sponsored by PGPF. I started it back in 2013, and our mission is to enhance students' understanding of fiscal policy. And like the audience might have heard from last week's podcast, we do it with a competition, experiential education. Uh, I'm an educator. I teach at UNC Chapel Hill and at Duke. And I was uh, about a decade ago, actually, uh, teaching a course in intermediate macro. And um, what I noticed was that there was a big gap, um, not just in my class, but in a lot of classes and not just at UNC, but in many colleges, that the students don't really get enough to touch and understand fiscal policy. We do a lot on monetary policy and the Fed and financial markets, but not a lot on fiscal policy. And I thought that was a shame because I, I think you could make an argument that fiscal policy is just as, if not more important than monetary policy as it pertains to touching our daily lives. So that was the motivation. You know, I had the privilege of, of talking to the uh, students and I, I'm, I must say that you know, they always ask good questions uh, at the end. And that's what's fun to talk to them about. And sometimes they ask about things that, um, you know, I hadn't thought about. And sort of it gives me an opportunity to to be quick on my feet if I can. So it really uh, they do seem to get a lot out of it. Um, I uh, so my my function was just to talk to them answer some questions. Phil, you were there uh, the whole time. Uh, you have some uh, questions for Mike. Thank you, Mike, for being with us today. And I enjoyed being the MC of the Fiscal Challenge this year. It was an absolute pleasure. It gave me so much hope to see these students' presentations. You know, if you spend a lot of time reading articles from around the nation, or if you read polling data, you can lose a lot of hope, right? These students have taken the time to research fiscal policy, to come to some conclusions, and to offer up some solutions. In many ways, they've gone far beyond what our Washington lawmakers <laughs> do. 
So it, it gives, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm a, I'm a person who searches for hope, right? Because our challenges are just so large for this, and I found it at the fiscal challenge. So I guess part of my question is, um, what did the students gain from it? Do they, they, you know, they haven't been fighting in the trenches on these issues and trying to educate people for all these years. They're, they're just now discovering these issues. But what do you think the students gain from this experience? The fact that you said hope and you were inspired by that is inspiring to me. I love that. I hear that comment often from friends and family. Oh, kids these days, they don't care about this stuff. And then I tell them about what we do and how these students are taking time out of their day after classes, after part-time jobs to work on this. It, it is really inspiring and hopeful. So to your question, though, um, every year we put out a survey and we talk to the students, ask them, well, why did you do this? What did you get out of this? And there's always a top four. Um, first is the educational component. That's the first one they always say. Now, they're answering it to a professor, so maybe take that with a grain of salt. But <laughs> they say, just from working on this exercise throughout the few months that they do so, is equivalent to paying the tuition for like a 400-level class. Imagine something you would take your junior or senior year. So that would be one. Two out of the four is networking. They love talking to like-minded students. They love meeting the guest speakers and the judges and um, actually... It was maybe three years ago where one of our guest speakers found an intern from the pool of candidates there. So the networking is fantastic. The third out of the four is team building. Um, I'm a, a nerd. I don't play a lot of sports. And I think a lot of our students, you know, maybe I'm the chief nerd. And we want to be able to actually participate in those types of team environments. But without the sports, it's not always as easy. This gives us and gives them a way to do so. The, the fourth, um, time and time again, resume building, right? The, these are college students. So part of their objective function is to get that next job. It looks great on the resume. It's unique. It's deep. It's analytical. It checks so many boxes for the students. So those are usually the four that we hear. These students are clearly going to be in uh, a powerful positions one day, right? That was one of the other takeaways I got from this scenario that oftentimes when we're our mission at the Concord Coalition is to educate Americans about federal budget policy. And we do that all the way down to the grassroots level. I felt like I was talking to the young grass tops level um, at this. And I, and I couldn't help but think the people who participated in this uh, will be legislative directors. Uh, they will be nonprofit leaders. They will be in the think tank uh, industry in some way, shape or form and not way off in the future, maybe as quick as like five or 10 years from now. Uh, these will be the type people. So, so I, I can see why this would be attractive to uh, professors across the country. If a professor at, say, the University of New Hampshire or the University of Georgia, two colleges that weren't represented in the fiscal challenge issue, if they wanted if, if colleges like that, wanted to participate, could you tell us what's the best way to, to go forward and to do that? Sure. Thanks for asking. Uh, one quick comment about what you were saying about the future leaders. Uh, we already we're on our 10th anniversary. So we have a little bit of track record. And um, one of our alum, I don't want to say names, um, was uh, hired by the CEA a couple of years ago, the Council for Economic Advisors, as a, you know, a, a rookie analyst. So I think in part, this experience helps to shape. Of course, there may be a self-selection bias, but it does help to shape. Um, and then thank you for 
the talking about the advisors, um, one thing I want to point out about the advisors is that they are really the unsung heroes of the, the competition. Um, the students obviously do a lot. You know, they, they thank me, they thank the guest speakers and Peterson, but the advisors are the professors who guide them on the substance. The advisors are the managers who help them engage in a team and they do it for free. You know, these are professors like myself who they don't get paid because it's not a class. It's an extracurricular. And uh, really, it's a shame because when I talk to teams, a group of students that got together, they register. They want to do this, but they drop out. And they say, why? The number one reason is we couldn't find an advisor. So, you know, thank you for all the advisors who do. If, for those who are considering, usually what I do is I have a quick onboarding call to tell them what it takes and a couple of the lessons. Three things I usually tell them with this type of extracurricular. Uh, the phrasing I used is to be a guide, not a porter. Uh, be a manager, not just a professor, and to help build a community among your students and within the, the department that you're in. Ah, Professor Aguilar, um, another fantastic uh, job putting this together this year. I just Thanks. really want to uh, tip my cap to you and your whole team. And as uh, Phil said, I was also extremely impressed with the thoughtfulness and the thoroughness of the projects that the students put together. And so a couple of observations, and I wanted to get your your take on this as, mm -hmm. as somebody who's been in this business a long time. As is what I expected, a lot of the students had proposals in their plans for a carbon tax. That seems to be pretty popular with this young crowd as a revenue raiser and also as something that addresses climate change, which is on the minds of a lot of young people. It should be on the minds of a a lot of other people, but neither here nor there. <laughs> but there was a lot of that. And every single team had some kind of proposal to cut defense spending. It was the, the, the largest area of a discretionary spending. And in terms of Social Security, not one of the teams had proposed adjusting the retirement age. And several of the teams said that they were looking directly at France, at the unrest, the social unrest in France, as the government there has um, put through a legislative proposal to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. And the other thing was there were a couple of teams who didn't propose any spending cuts at all sure. um, because they were concerned about the what the state of the economy was, and this isn't really a good time to do major cuts in spending. So I was just curious as your as to your your take sort of overall uh, where the mood of these young people um, were and what is impacting their thinking because it was a little bit different than last year's presentations. Yeah, every year we see some commonalities. The, the the young college students they want to legalize marijuana. <laughs> they, uh, that's a common. That's a perennial. Um, uh, they want to eliminate mortgage deduction, mortgage tax deduction. Right? Um, they don't own a home typically at that stage of their lives. Uh, DOD is usually far from their thinking as well. So we see those. You, you mentioned this this uh, focusing on maybe just the revenue raisers or the, you know cutting spending. One of the reasons why we set up the uh, I set up the the task the way I did was to challenge them to think about the dynamic effects. So what I mean specifically is the target is not just amorphous fix the national debt problem. I give them a specific target debt to GDP a fraction, and so in doing so, they have to think about 
right? What are the revenues? What are the expenditures, the numerator, the deficit? And then the denominator, which is economic activity. I know that Bob talks about this often in his speeches as well. And then what are the dynamic effects between the two? So if a team usually doesn't talk about either numerator and or denominator, they're missing out on something. And that's, I think, a part what separates some of the best teams from those that don't make it to that championship. Um, one other thing to mention, though, is that those championship teams, like the best proposals, yeah, maybe they'll they'll put in the legalized marijuana, et cetera, but they have to talk about those, quote unquote, elephants in the room, entitlement spending, healthcare, in, in creative ways, but they got to talk about that, and the, the best teams do. This is not a subject that we will ignore, uh, will be... Because it's it's really part and parcel of what the Concord Coalition does, uh, which is public education on fiscal responsibility and particularly extending it to the younger generations because they're the future leaders uh, and they also have the most at stake. So Mike Aguilar, president and founder of the Fiscal Challenge, thank you for coming on and discussing it with us. Look forward to next year's challenge. That's all the time we have on Facing the Future this week. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in again next week when I will have another episode of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.